Hi, you're listening to The Gesher Sessions, a podcast on the psychology of religious belief and experience. My name is Dr. John Catone, and I've been a psychologist for almost 20 years. But for most of my life, I've been on a quest to better understand the mysteries of existence, as well as the beliefs that people have about those mysteries. Joining me on this quest are two of my closest friends, Daphne Solta-Stein and Dr. David McLean. Daphne and David are not just my companions on the road of truth. They're two of the smartest and deepest people I know. If you've been searching for an oasis where people have intelligent conversations about religion without sacrificing rational thinking or intellectual honesty, then you've found what you've been looking for. And we've been waiting for you. So come on and join us. And let's cross some bridges together. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us on the Gesser Sessions podcast. Joining me once again are my co-hosts, Daphne Solta-Stein and Dr. David McLean. Today's episode, episode two, is entitled Why Religion Matters, which is David's foundational episode and is based on a book by the same name by Houston Smith. So now, without further ado, here's David to tell us why religion matters and why this book is part of his foundation of belief. Well, why religion matters. First, let me talk about the subtitle to the book, which I always leave out in discussions of the book. The title of the book is Why Religion Matters, The Fate of the Human Spirit in an Age of Disbelief. And if there's a book that I wish I had written myself, of all the books that I've read and have taught, um, it's probably this one, because I think that the the approach that Euston Smith takes, and by the way, for those who don't know who Euston Smith is, he was probably the premier teacher of world religions. He taught at Berkeley and other universities. He's, uh, you can go on YouTube and there's a whole range of, of videos you'll find with Houston Smith talking about the world's religions. And I mean, everything from, you know, Hinduism to Buddhism to Judaism, you know, he just covers everything. And he's very famous for one of his books is called The World's Religions that I actually studied when I was in seminary. It's a, yes, it's a very good book. And there's even a, illustrated version of the book for people who like like to see illustrations. So it's a very, he's a very good teacher. He's very clear in his writing style. But the reason why, uh, why religion matters is probably my foundation book in understanding world religions and, and helping us sort of be navigated, if you will, out of what I consider a very bad period. Uh, and for reasons that you, that I'll discuss from the book in, in, in a minute is that Smith grasps and understands not only what ails us and and uh, where we need to be going, but he also diagnoses the problems that led to where we are and doesn't suggest that all the things that led us to where we are were bad things. So I'll talk about that um, shortly. I wrote my doctoral dissertation on the American philosopher Richard Rorty. Richard Rorty was not a fan of religion. So people think that I'm kind of, you know, in the in the sort of pedestrian sense of the word, schizophrenic when it comes to my my views. I am actually a member at large of the Richard Rorty Society. And I in my dissertation, I took Rorty to task for his very, very thin and almost jejune understanding of religion. And he himself, the uh, Richard Rorty, admitted that he just doesn't have the ear for religion. He just doesn't feel it. And that's fine. I understand that. But Rorty called religion a conversation stopper, as though a discussion of existentialism at a party or phenomenology at a party or nuclear physics at a party wouldn't also be conversation stoppers, right? But it was a way to sort of denigrate religious experience, religious language. And I thought that Rorty was just dead wrong about uh, about that, and his understanding uh, of religion was pretty weak. So I ended my dissertation on Rorty in a very strange way that my dissertation advisor asked me about uh, when I visited him after I got my doctorate. I went to his house in Queens, his apartment in Queens, and brought him a little present, couldn't give it to him before the dissertation was finished because that would have been unethical. But I wanted to give him a little present for helping me through the process. And he asked me at his kitchen table why I ended the dissertation in a sort of non sequitur way with a poem that ends this book by Houston Smith, Why Religion Matters. And the poem was written by an Italian poet, Giacomo Leopardi. Now, Smith, at the very end of the book, 
only quotes a, a tiny bit of the poem. In my dissertation, I quoted the poem at length. But this is what Smith says. Uh, he's talking about a, a period of time when he is visiting the desert with his wife, and he goes out, and in the middle of the night, he's called to go outside, and he has this really close sort of mindful experience where his mind is clear, and he just feels something is happening to him that he couldn't quite put his uh, finger on. Then he leads to a discussion at the very end of the book where he says this, For half an hour or so I walk the road, without, as I remember, the epiphany, uh, a thought in my head. It may have been as close as I've ever come to the empty mind that Buddhists worked toward for years. There my powers of description shut down, so I was, I was happy, a year or two later, to come upon this poem by Giacomo Leopardi, which, on reading, I recognize as giving words to the night in question. In that poem, a nomadic shepherd in Asia is posing questions to a moon that seems to dominate the infinity of earth and heaven questions whose horizons are themselves infinite. And this is the excerpt. And when I gaze upon you, who mutely stand above the desert plains, which heaven with its far circle but confines, or often when I see you following step by step my flock in me, or watch the stars that shine there in the sky, musing, I say within me, wherefore those many lights, that boundless atmosphere, an infinite calm sky, and what the meaning of this vast solitude, and what am I? And the last question, and what am I? I always wish that Giacomo Leopardi said, and who am I, as the next question. But that question of what am I, you can just imagine this wandering shepherd puzzling over you know, human existence, the, ex the great existential question, what are we doing here? What am I? Why these thoughts? And to me, that ending my dissertation with that poem was a, was a sort of a declaration of independence from academic philosophy, in a sense, that it was a way to say a kind of a repudiation of the journey I took in the dissertation, although I love Rorty, and Rorty has been very useful to me in my thinking on for many for a variety of reasons. There is an aridity. So let me talk about that and then I'll turn it back over to you, John and Daphna. Uh, one of the things that Houston Smith discusses in the book is what ails us. And he uses a metaphor that he borrows from a novel. In the novel, a man is living a very terrible, you know, sort of uh, suffocating suburban life and has a bad marriage and is deciding to try to flee it by digging a tunnel through his basement floor. And the idea of a tunnel comes to Houston Smith as a great metaphor for talking about what's wrong with us. And so Smith goes, he takes the idea of a tunnel and he says, we're in a tunnel right now in our 20th century uh, civilization, Western civilization particularly, uh, if I can still use the word Western. He says that in the tunnel, the floor is scientism, not science, but scientism. Uh, the ceiling of the tunnel is the media. The right wall of the tunnel is the law, and the left wall of the tunnel is academia or, or higher education. And what, he's, what he says about uh, this tunnel, just imagine seeing a, a dark tunnel and a light at the end, and you want to get to that light, but you can't, the, the, the tunnel walls and floor and ceiling are keeping you hemmed in. So this is what he says about, about each of those parts of the tunnel. Scientism, the floor. We're living in an age now where science is king. Science, we, we can say science slash, slash technology. And so everything has to be reduced to scientific language. Now here again, Richard Rorty disagrees, by the way, with scientism, just like uh, Houston Smith does. He thinks scientism, Rorty thought scientism was very dangerous uh, for civilization and for our discourse, modern public discourse. But we live in an age where even though we don't want to admit that we're scientistic in our thinking. We kind of are. We kind of think that everything has to be reduced to data and a scientific explanation. And if something does not, cannot be put in scientific terms, then it's nonsense and meaningless, right? So there's movements in, in philosophy, uh, old positivism of the Vienna Circle that made a terrible mistake. And it was, only, and it was philosophy itself that beat back that uh, impulse towards scientism 
and sort of positivistic thinking. So Smith says the floor of the tunnel is scientism. It drains the blood out of any idea that any other kind of discourse could possibly be true, right? So even if you're even if you are an atheist or you're just unreligious, an explanation of the world in phenomenological terms is kind of just poetry, right? Not really true. The only really true language you can speak is scientific language. Smith rejects that, as do I. The right side of the tunnel is is the law. Nothing wrong with the law, just like there's nothing wrong with science. But what has happened with the law? The law has basically says that, and especially in the United States context, but no, in France as well, in the European countries, that there's got to be this sort of strict separation where religion is pinched off from the public square and the use of religious discourse is illicit in some sense, right? So you can't bring your religious self, your religious identity to the public square. And to start to do that raises questions of one pursuing a theocratic mission for government, etc. And that's just false, right? He says that, uh, Smith argues that the law, uh, in a sort of liberal secular sense, has led to this notion that any kind of religious discourse is illicit for public policy discussions. There are certain things in religious discourse that should be off bounds. We shouldn't mandate in a law that everyone be circumcised in a modern secular state, a democratic secular state that's pluralistic. That would be off bounds. But there's nothing wrong with um, quoting Isaiah from the Senate floor or the Tao Te Ching or Jeremiah to make a point. But we have this idea that we can't do that, that the use of religious language in law and policy is somehow illicit. The roof of the tunnel, Smith called, is Smith identifies as the media. And what he means here is that the media tends to operate, as we know, we know now over the past seven or eight years or so, for sure, if it leads, it bleeds. That's been an old belief about the news business. If it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. If, I'm sorry, if it bleeds, it leads. Thank you. And so the same applies to how the media describes religion. So what will you see? And and you'll see religion portrayed in the most violent, dangerous ways that one can imagine. We'll see what's going on in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. We'll see what's going on with Wahhabists in Saudi Arabia, as though those things represent religiosity in toto, right? They don't represent religiosity in total. They're just basically parts of religiosity, just like there are wayward parts of politics and other wayward parts of civil society institutions. There are wayward parts of religiosity. But the media portrays religion, uh, rarely does it point out that religion saves lives every day, that it breaks people's addictions, that it keeps families together, and that it allows people to just get up in the morning and go about their lives without contemplating ending them. We don't see that in the media. Right. We just focus on the media just focuses on the more salacious things that will get eyeballs and ratings, ratings to to rise for the for the news cycle. And then the left uh, wall is academia or higher education. And I know a lot about this uh, as someone who takes religion very seriously uh, as a very important thing. And I, when I say religion, it is for the audience to know that I don't mean a particular religion. I think that all of the world's great faith, for example, uh, are very useful, very important to the people who, who live live them out. Um, in academia, there's a hostility uh, to religion unless you're in the comparative religion department at the university or something like that, in which case you're studying religion in sort of under a microscope to understand it. But the idea of faith and living out a religious life is somehow seen as irrational, right, and against the whole enterprise of higher education. And this has not always been the case. And that goes hand in hand with the the sort of uh, uh, attack on the humanities in general, which is part and parcel of the scientism that we are living under, which is part and parcel of how the law has separated the idea of religiosity from public policy, as though public policy has absolutely no truck with religious ideas or understanding. Uh, I always tell people that the West is the product of not only Athens, but probably more so the product of Jerusalem. There's that old discussion, you know, are you on the side of Athens or Jerusalem, which just kind of lines up with, are you a 
secularist or are you a religious person? And we borrowed from both. Uh, we borrowed from Athens, the ancient Greek notion of democracy, which is very, very paltry notion of democracy. But we got a lot of our ideas from Greeks, from the Greeks and from the Romans as well. Uh, but we got most of our moral ideas and our moral compass came from Judaism. Um, so how someone can, you know, just forget that and make believe that we're just going to sweep that heritage under the rug is beyond me and, and actually does violence to public discourse and to the individual souls of people who are searching for something. And finally, I just want to end on this point. Many secularists think that one of the worst things that could have happened to humanity is the idea of God. And I think that is not only incorrect, it's quite the opposite is true. I think the idea of God is the best idea that humanity has ever had. Because in the idea of God is the idea of purposefulness in the universe. Uh, without the idea of God, and and that can be done in ways that are very problematic, thinking of God in, in superstitious ways, for example, uh, as being your butler to, to give you your lottery ticket wins, things like that. But the general idea of God is of a creator who has a purpose and imbues the universe with purpose so that purpose isn't just, isn't just something that arises from your own individual lives. It is all around you, right? whether you live or not. There is a purpose to all of this, and religion tells stories about that purpose and gives you something to believe in, so you can begin to feel like this is not just a, a hostile, alien existence that you're in, lost in it, but that you're at home in this universe, that this is yours. And uh, you read Jeremiah, you read Isaiah, you read the gospel accounts, you read other traditional religious accounts, and you'll see that this is how God is operating. Um, it, it's not all about your personal salvation, but this idea that all around us is, isn't just aimless weather, as, you, as William James put it, that we're not just operating in a void where there's just no meaning to anything, uh, but that we're actually swimming in meaning. What we need to do now is develop the eyes to see it. And what religions try to do is to try to get you to develop those eyes. And once that happens, divinity, if you will, that word works for you, the listener, divinity floods in and everything makes sense. And then one, one more final point, and I said, that, I said that was my final one. The only thing I want people to list, that are listening to this that are not sympathetic to religion to understand is that nothing that any of us are saying on this podcast is encouraging in any way a violation of what the philosopher Peirce called a blocking the road to inquiry, right? In fact, if anything, we're trying to open up the road to inquiry, right? Because that road to inquiry about the nature of religion has been blocked in the tunnel. We all believe in science. We all believe in technology. We think that there are abuses of science and technology, just like there are abuses of anything else. But by no means should we block the road to inquiry, as, for example, the early church did, uh, or even the modern church in some sense. We are not about that. Right? We think that there's a good place for science. Uh, it's important that modernity was a good thing, wasn't a bad thing. That post-modernity was a good thing, as Smith says, not a bad thing. But we have to understand the limits of these movements and these epochs in human history and not forget that the traditional element, the religious impulse, the idea that we need a sense of purpose and that we have to get to that, we have to get through that tunnel to get a holistic understanding of what it means to be human, that is, I think, what Smith is, was trying to get us to, to see. So that's why I like the book so much, and I recommend it to the listeners. What's the name of the book again? Why Religion Matters, The Fate of the Human Spirit in an Age of Disbelief. And can I ask, the four walls of the tunnel mm -hmm. for our listeners are scientism, law, higher education, academia, and what is the fourth wall? The, the ceiling was the media. Ah, media. Thank mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. David, that was a great summary and presentation. One of the things that I think about when I think about religion, why religion matters, I think about the times and places in which the 
founding events of each religion took place. And I think about what was going on in the world, what was the scientific understanding about various natural phenomena, and whether these beliefs, a system of beliefs, sort of sprung up within small tribes that were geographically close to each other versus, you know, spread out all over the place. And I, and I think that in, in my understanding of a number of different religions, that the specific religions and the specific religious beliefs that were developed were developed in response to events and cultures that were relatively isolated and then the beliefs you know were sort of passed down through tradition from generation to generation and as that happened it spread across larger regions and over longer periods of time from a historical perspective i guess the question that i would ask is can you really truly understand a religion from outside of the time and place in which it sprung up? Or are we just engaging in a fool's errand of trying to recreate context? And I guess subsequent to that is, to what extent do you believe that religions and religious belief within each group, within each religion, needs to be updated for each succeeding generation and each place. Well, I'll start with the last question. Mm -hmm. Every religion is updated by each succeeding generation because people have brains. Right? Mm -hmm. So so they're going to constantly look at the world around them and they're going to update their ideas. So, in, for example, in Islam, under the notion of ishtihad, the idea of using reason to think, to figure out what the right way to address a particular matter in society uh, should be, that, in some sense, the idea that religions are merely traditional and they're merely handing forth ideas without anyone thinking through what's being handed down, that's false, right? That's a false idea, just like it's a false idea that cultures do that, right? I was When I was teaching a, a, a course, I reminded my students that while the rock guitar is most associated with people that look like you, John, that is to say, so so-called white people, right? Um, it really is an of African and and um, and uh, Middle Eastern der derivation. I think we're Indian derivation. It is not. Uh, so we borrow all the time. So there's I, the idea of hermetically sealed cultures or the passing down of little packages from one generation to the next without them being unpacked. It reminds me of something I read in Forest Church's little book. Um, Forest Church, for those who don't know who he was, was a very, very prominent Unitarian minister and wrote a book called it A Chosen Faith. And he talked about this gentleman by the name of Angus McLean, no relation, different spelling, who said that we are not the bellhops of history, simply passing down ideas from one generation to the, to the next without unpacking the luggage and trying to determine whether or not the stuff in the bags are useful to us. No, we discard what we don't need. So the recontextualization of ideas always happens because people are human beings have brains. And when we don't recontextualize and update religion, and I use the word update carefully, we get the extremism that brings danger to the world and brings the notion that religion is violent. My answer is that answer. We hold the truth and the rest of you don't get it, and we will enforce it upon you. That's the part of religion that makes all of us recoil. But the majority of practicing Jews, Christians, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Taoists, etc., take the truths, the basic core human truths, or God-given truths, if I can use that word, human awareness is revealed, and we understand them, as John said, in the contexts of our time. Mm -hmm. That's and true. religion and the purpose, that sense of purposefulness that Dave was referring to is essential. If, if religion doesn't help me have a sense of my purpose 
In Judaism, we refer to that as my personal Torah. There's the Torah scrolls, the five books of Moses, and then there's the Talmud in 2,000 years of additional development of Judaism and interpretation and discussion and dialogue. So faith as dialogue, as academia, in fact. That, that idea of personal Torah is, my name is Daphne Salty-Stein. I've been in the world for 70 years. What has been my purpose? Or when I'm 30, my name is Daphne Stein. I've been here for 30 years. Now I'm, I'm in the process of figuring out my purpose. What am I going to do to make the world a good place? How am I going to serve humanity myself? Could be that I'm a kindergarten teacher. Could run a daycare center. Could be a university professor. Could be a macro, microbiologist. But my personal Torah and my connection to everyone else, you know, that's a truth of religion. And your earlier question, John, that you started out by talking about whether or not, since uh, religions uh, usually sprung up um, in sort of, I think the your word was isolated communities, to some degree isolated, but yeah. uh, isolated in the sense that, you know, 3,000 years ago in the Vedic tradition was being developed, there was no internet. <laughs> right? So in that sense, there was isolation. You had to cross mm -hmm. mountains to get to another culture. But I'm not, I'm not quite sure that that matters. Why? Well, I'll, I'll tell you why I think that matters, because I think religion in each part of the world springs up as an answer to some of the unanswerable questions. And from my perspective, the origin story of each religion starts with some sort of transcendent experience to a prophet or godlike figure. Mm -hmm. And so I guess if we're talking about Judaism, we're talking about Jacob, Israel, right? And then we talk about the 12 tribes of Israel, right? You have to go back to Abraham, the first <laughs> Jew, in my opinion. So let me talk about Christianity since that's the religion of my, of my upbringing. But I guess even, even within Judaism, when we talk about the geographic region in the early days, I mean, this was a relatively small geographic region relative to how Judaism has spread throughout the world to the current day, right? And the same thing, you know, if we think about Christianity, obviously Jesus was a Jew within, you know, a region of Israel and, and the Middle East, and there was a set of beliefs that he was born with and, and practiced, I believe, and this is, you know, maybe for another episode, I don't believe that Jesus meant to found his own religion separate from Judaism, but to simply create his own sect of reform Judaism. But eventually, hundreds of years later, when the Christian version or the Jesus version of Judaism was co-opted by the Roman Empire, it then merged with the pre-existing religion and customs and traditions of the Greco-Roman world, and then, you know, had an element of sort of Roman imperialism superimposed on top of it. And then centuries later, you had the British who then took all of that and added their own version or interpretation of history. And then here we are now centuries later where we have sort of the American version of all of this. But the American version of Christianity that's practiced is so far removed from the teachings and the practices of the original Jesus movement. Because, you know, again, Jesus being Jewish, most Christians do not celebrate all of the Jewish holidays in the way that Jesus did when he was alive and his followers. And those beliefs sprang up in response to the Roman Empire and the lessons and the metaphors were all in reference to what was going on at the time. But I think you could look to each religion and see elements of that. So then it creates a tension. And I guess, you know, let me ask you and 
Daphne, maybe you know you can speak to this best. But within each religion, not just in Judaism, you have sort of fundamentalists or orthodox people on one end, and then you have kind of reformers on the other end, and then you have sort of moderates or you know in Judaism, I guess it would be the more conservative movement. But you have people in the middle who are really trying to struggle with well, what aspects of originalism do we keep and to what extent do we update? And I think you see this tension within all religions mm-hmm. because it's, uh, it's, it's a difficult question. How much do we hold on to in light of the fact that those times and places were very different than our own? Well, what I've noticed in Judaism or what I know to be true in Judaism is in, in this era, we refer to Judaism as a large tent. It's a large tent in which we welcome anybody who practices Judaism in any way, shape, or form who's a Jew or has become a Jew by choice or was born Jewish. We have ultra-Orthodox Judaism. We have Hasidism. In Hasidism, we have many, many different sects following different rabbis from Europe. We have conservative Judaism. We have reform Judaism, which is already a century plus from the 1880s old, and we have Reconstructionist Judaism, now called Reconstructing Judaism, and then we have many other smaller groups, and the effort, especially in the 21st century, is to include everybody in the tent and to include all voices. Creationism, I think, is to, to literally interpret the Torah is not really done in Judaism. Even uh, you go to the extreme extremes of Hasidic thought, and except for the teaching of children, the basic Bible stories, what's the literal meaning, because children up to the age of seven, that's what you give them. Um, Nobody thinks there was really an Adam and Eve that I know of, adult Jew who has any uh, higher education, who, you know, who has studied law and science and Judaism, science and law and education all come together. Most, you know, you study the Talmud, you're a mathematician. Most of the scientists I know and mathematicians that I know who are Jewish are religious. And the Torah itself is a document, not just of stories and ancient history. Are, is the Torah true? Yes. Is it literally true? Probably not. What are the metaphors? What are the lessons? What are the truths in the story So what is the truth in Abraham going out into nature, out into the deserts of the Judean desert? I'm sorry, that's Jesus, Jesus who went out into the Judean desert. Abraham was in a a metropolis in Mesopotamia. He left the metropolis to have his experience as a shepherd boy. Jesus left Jerusalem and he left the Galilee and went out into the Judean desert to experience and respond to the vastness of nature and experience transcendent experiences. So we look at those stories and we say, what what is there for us in the stories of these men and their women? Although, you know, religion is very, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Patriarchal, you know, both in the Bible and most other contexts. Religion has to be modernized might be for in Judaism interpretation and in an in interpretation in Judaism we teach we venture to teach children how to think and sharpen their minds when they study the Torah and the Talmud how many different ways can you look at the story being told or the law or group of laws being studied how many ways can we look at it and interpret it and argue about it, not fight about it, but argue to sharpen our minds. My idea versus your idea. The ancient, what comes to mind, and then I'll stop talking, is the ancient um, schools of study of Rabbi Hillel versus Rabbi Shammai, and we study their arguments with each other. Even something as simple as when you light a Hanukkah menorah, Do you start with eight candles and as the eight days pass, go down to one? That's what Shammai said in his school of thought. Or do we start with one and as the eight days pass, increase till we have eight candles, 
That was the school of Hillel. And there's pages and pages about this argument and why. Yeah, I, I think that, um, John, just quickly, um, the, uh, the idea that the human brain is removed from the evolving of religious practice or ideas is a mistake. What's what's taken from the Jesus movement, for example? Well, I mean, in many ways, Jesus is not the founder of Christianity. Paul was. And then you can say, beyond Paul, the Desert Fathers, Origen, Irenaeus, were the founders of, of what we call, what we recognize as the, the modern, uh, the or the early modern church. And of course, you've already, the moment the moment the, the Jesus movement lost its founder, it was left to the followers to try to interpret, to use Daphne's words, what the movement was about. What was it really about? And then there's going to be fighting about that, right? And there's going to be clashes and someone's going to come out as, quote unquote, the winner. But, you know, I think that the idea of tensions are always going to be there. I mean, in secular ideas, even in psychology, John, you know, there's Adlerians and Freudians mm -hmm. and this. So... Uh, and there are people that in psychology just have no use at all for Freud. In philosophy, people that are phenomenologists have no real use at all for other types of approaches to uh, academic law. That's just going to be the way it is. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, and, and people have a religious-like devotion to the theorist, whether it's Freud or Beck or Adler, Melanie Klein, whoever and I, I would argue, And I would argue, though, John, to that point, there's something good about that. Mm -hmm. uh, that the devotion to a theory, you're, you're really thinking out the full theory. Mm -hmm. And that takes deep thought and respect and honoring the theoretical approach. And if you, if you were to convert that over to religion, everyone else steps back and watches the Adlerian do the Adlerian thing or watches the, the Methodist or the Reformed Jew do their thing. And at a distance, and you can see that there's an interplay going on, but the world, I would say, is driven by people who overstate their case, to borrow a phrase from Richard Rorty, who says, I overstate my case because if I don't overstate the case, nobody's going to pay attention, <laughs> right? So the Adlerian that defends Adlerian thought or the Freudians that de defend Freudian thought to try to hold on to what's really good in those ideas, I think are very useful to the rest of us, right? Mm -hmm. We can't all be eclectic dilettantes. Uh, well, maybe let me, let me rephrase that. We can't all be eclectic all the time. There's got to be uh, a place for real disciplines to exist. We, we live in an age now, especially in academia, where this interdisciplinarity idea has run amok. And people are thinking that they understand economics because they've taken two economics courses and they can sort of mishmash it into uh, an approach to understanding society. No, we need economists who just study economics. Uh, we need surgeons who just study a particular kind of surgery because that's really what makes society uh, function. We need the eclectics and we need the people who are dug in to some degree. I wonder if we want to address religion in the beginning of this broadcast. Dave, you were talking about what religion does offer us. And I just took some quick notes, a reason to get up in the morning teaches moral a moral conscience or moral compass, keeps families together, breaks addictions. If people are addicted, often religion is a pathway back for them. But this idea that religion gives positive structure for facing every day that we live, Absolutely. which goes back to that sense of purpose. What is my purpose? What is the purpose of my community? Yeah. So I wrote a paper once. Uh, it's uh, it's on academia.edu. I didn't get it published. Uh, it's called Five Types of Soteriology, Fancy Word for Salvation. And what I, what I tried to do there is to say, it, it's really hard to define what religion is. And I, I started out with the no, notion by Potter Stewart, it's hard to define obscenity, but I know it when I see it. Right? And I, my argument was, I'm going, to, I'm going to try to suggest what religion boils down to at the risk of being wrong about that, right? And I suggested what religious what religion boils down to is salvation. And then I went into a discussion of types of salvation. I don't mean necessarily salvation in the sense that, you know, you're going to go to heaven when you die and that kind of salvation, or you're born again and you're saved. That's one kind of salvation, right? But there are other kinds of salvation. And if you strip the idea of 
uh, my test for what something is, is what, if I strip this quality from it, is it still that thing? And if you strip the idea of some kind of salvific asset um, from religion, what good is it, right? What good is it at that point? So if you are, and I, the examples I use range from those who are saved through some kind of notion of a connection with nature, and somehow that imbues their life with a reason to get up in the morning, that I'm part of this wonderful scheme uh, of things. So imagine John Muir looking out over a, a crag at, at, the, at, at a beautiful mountain range. So I think that in, I think that if anything religion is, it's salvate, it's salvific. And to Daphne's point, if your belief system—I hate to use that expression—it sounds so clinical—but if your beliefs, if your ideas about what your founding texts are, your your founding ideas in your religion are, if you can turn to them and be saved from nihilism, that it's just all aimless weather. To use that quote from William James again that nothing really matters. I think, um, yeah, that's what it's all about. And so the idea of God, regardless of whether you, whatever you call God by whatever name you use, the basic idea of God is that there is an intelligence, uh, quote-unquote, that cares um, in some sense, even if you're going to die or you may die a horrible death, or but there's something that is in control and that you're part of that thing. It's not aimless weather. And I think that it's. I think that's a very important thing for people to to operate under. If you did, I. By the way, I feel that most secularists. I'm just going to real be really bold here, and I'm probably going to get a lot of pushback. I can just see the comments on YouTube now. I I think the secularists that claim that I don't need that religion stuff. I'm fine. Why can't we just uh, be ethical and treat each other well? Blah blah blah. I think that they have they suffer from a failure of imagination. I think that's the whole point of the human Houston Smith book. I don't think people have really thought through nihilism. Nietzsche did. Nietzsche said that the death of God, Nietzsche wasn't calling for the death of God. Nietzsche said, I see the death of God here, right, in modern Western civilization, and this is going to be the result. You better get ready for it. And the only thing I see as a person that's just Nietzsche saying, as someone that is not buying the Christianity, the the Judaism stuff, the only thing I think that's going to save us from the cold, horrifying reality that God is dead is the Superman idea, which, I mean, some of my colleagues would say, I'm wrong for saying this, I don't think so, not entirely, which gave rise to the Nazis. This idea that we can uh, we can stand up to the void, to that aimless weather, and, and sort of stare it down by willing our purpose onto the universe, that that somehow would be sufficient to keep us sane I think is is a terrible mistake, and I frankly believe that a lot of the malaise, the, the deaths of despair that we're we're seeing now in in the in society, are part of what Nietzsche predicted. So I think this podcast, this religion idea, is a matter of life and death uh, for many people. What we're discussing now isn't simply a palliative, uh, how to get palliative so people can cope with existence. It's about does this mean anything at all? I think one of the um, greatest purposes, if I can use that word of religion or a faith, a faith is to feel that we're not alone, right? Man is not alone. Abraham Joshua Heschel was a rabbi who wrote many, many books, one of which is Man is Not Alone. Rabbi Sandy Eisenberg Sasso, who is our contemporary, she wrote an extraordinarily simple yet beautiful book for children called In God's Name, or God's, not In God's Name, God's Name. And in it, it references every, people have all kinds of names for what God is for them at any different moment in time, suggesting that we need God to be different things in faith. God could be friend, could be a father, can be a mother. For the soldier, God is a healer. For the um, baby, God is a mother, right? For the farmer, God is source of rain and sun. I'm just pulling these out of my head, but she has about 30 names. You know, God is different things for different people at different times. And ultimately, when we all, she has all these different people gather in the storybook around a lake. 
And all at one time, they all look into the lake and they recognize that God indeed is in every one of us. God is as, as your inner compass. You know, I could go on and on my inner compass for my moral compass again, or my ability to um, be kind and recognize everybody is fighting a battle. So be kind, be compassionate, be understanding, be a good listener. And then the question for a psychologist like me is, what prevents people from being mm -hmm. kind? What prevents people from being a good listener? What prevents people from being compassionate? And from my perspective as a psychologist, particularly within the Freudian psychodynamic tradition, is one's defense mechanisms, but also in addition to that, one's cognitive development. And in the same way David said he's going to get in trouble uh, for certain things, maybe I'm going to get in trouble for my next comments. And I'll go into this a little bit more in, in our next episode. But so much about, I think, how I understand religion is based on developmental theory or the developmental theories of the human mind and development in general. And I think the human mind, the human being is multi-layered. And in various developmental psychology theories, theorists talk about a gradual progression of understanding of the world from parts to wholes. And some people never graduate to that level where they understand the whole and they just fixate on parts. And psychologists, particularly developmental psychologists, will talk about various psychological conditions or in the sexual realm perversions that stem from the fixation on a part at the expense of focusing on the whole. And I think whether we're talking about secularists who have no appreciation for what the religious mindset brings to the human condition, or we're talking about fundamentalists in religion who have no appreciation for the advantages that various secular and scientific understandings give us. If you are focusing on a part at the expense of the whole, and you see things in black and white terms as all or none, psychologists would call that splitting and, and sort of a, a fixation on a borderline mindset. And that's something that needs to be transcended, I believe, to graduate to a higher level of understanding of existence, of the self. The self with a small s, the self with a capital S. But I'll talk a little bit more about that in more detail uh, in the next episode. I look forward to that next episode, John, because I'm wondering if you see the developmental stages like climbing a ladder that happen mm -hmm. one at a time or like a spiral that can circle in around itself as it gets higher mm. and higher that right. we revisit stages that came before as we progress to higher stages. But I suppose we should leave that for episode three. <laughs> Very good. Or, or even because uh, because that idea of of uh, development jives with the tunnel uh, metaphor um, that Smith uses. Or now, tell us more. Well, I mean, if you are if you're a materialist, as many people are, uh, and a physicalist, you think the only thing that's real in society is what science can explain, and everything else is nonsense. Well, that's just one layer of understanding of things you get to higher levels. I, I like to think of it in terms of that. Remember the old world book encyclopedia when you got mm -hmm. to the human body and it would have the, the clear right. sort of a translucent or tra mm -hmm. trans and you would layer the first you start out with the skeleton and then you would turn the page and it'd be, you know, the muscles and then the nervous, you know, that's kind of how I think we build up our understanding of the world around us. And I think that what Smith is talking about with respect to the tunnel is that, if you say the only thing that really is real is the bones, <laughs> mm -hmm. that's the only thing that's real. Well, what about the muscle? What about the nerves? But but here's the other thing about to to John's point about developmental psychology. 
we can't forget that we're organisms as as well as we're a lot of other things. And one of the things as organisms that we have to do is survive. And Smith does justice to that discussion when he talks about modernity. Modernity has equipped human beings with a lot of tools to survive. And we've gone, wow, look at all these tools we have to survive and, and thrive and be can and be uh and be protected and and it's there's no wonder that we fixate on science and technology as our savior. But there's more to the story than than those fixations. There's a lot more to human life than than just that dimension. I'd like to just add when we talk about materialism in the human body, that we think about the nervous system and the energy that is the power of the nervous system or that powers the nervous system. I mean, the nerves are material, but the energy, and it's mediated by the pineal gland, which mediates light and darkness through melatonin, light coming in in darkness and the pineal gland in mystical terms, in Buddhism and Judaism, I know, the pineal gland is the seat of the soul. It's in, you know, it's midway between the forehead and the base of the skull, kind of between the ears and behind. And pineal in Hebrew is pineal, the face of God, or the many faces of God, if you will. All right, so we need to wrap things up now, but I want to thank you, David and Daphna, and I especially want to thank all of you out there listening and for crossing today's bridge with us on Why Religion Matters. There'll be other bridges, but we'll cross them when we come to them. And I hope you'll join us for those as well. Take care, everyone. Gesher. Each episode of the Gesher Sessions podcast, including its recording and contents, is copyright of the Gesher Sessions. All rights reserved. Today's episode was produced and edited by Lisa Catone. The music used for the beginning and end of today's episode was composed by Anthony LaRoe, who owns its copyright and gave permission for its use.